Omagyanati Maramdasya Kyananda Sulakya Shakshuru Militaminata Svai Shri Guru Vainamaha. Today I uh, want to continue our readings from the uh, Bhakti literature and uh, initially in these talks I've been reading from Srimad Bhagavatam and uh, today, then yesterday I read from the uh, Brihad Bhagavatam Rita which is uh, Sanatan Goswami's writing and which is very nicely uh, translated and uh, by Gobi Purana Dhanath Prabhu who uh, also left us with a really uh, very rich commentary and we enjoyed reading it yesterday um, today I want to read from Sila Rupa Goswami from Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu a verse that I've often uh, referred to and uh, yeah, reading from Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, one two, two hundred. Ata tadarte kila chistitam yatapan sharatri lokiki vaidiki vapi yakriya kriyate mune hari sevan kulai sakarya bhaktim itchata. Translate making full efforts for the Lord. First, as mentioned in verse 88, um, illustrated in the Pancharatra. So verse 88 is part of a, of a list of activities of, uh, of sadhana bhakti, um, or of uh, practicing devotional service in cultivation. And now this list is being explained in, in more detail. And then it says, Lokiki vaidiki vapi kriya kriyate mune harisevana kula vaisa karya bhaktim itchata. Now, verse 1 to 200 of the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. O sage, among all the Vedic, and routine actions, the translator said, routine actions, one could also say just, just common, common activities um, that are performed. The person desiring bhakti should perform those which are favorable for the service of the Lord. So the two types of activities, the Vedic activities in other words, the activities that are activities based on prescribed Vedic tradition, and then the lokic. These are the, the, the activities that are like common practice uh, uh, without any Vedic origin. And uh, such activities may be performed if they give benefit in the service of the Lord. If they are Hariseva Anukul, 
So this verse is, uh, yeah, to me is significant because we're living in a time when uh, it is not always possible to follow the perfect uh, Vedic model. And, uh, and that we see that the Bhakti movement of Lord Chaitanya is not exactly a Vedic revival movement, but rather that it is a movement which is about the ultimate conclusion of the Vedas, uh, which is Savai Pumso Paru Dharmo Yata Bhakti Radokshate Aitakiya Patiata Yatma Supasiddhati, which is that pure devotional service is the topmost activity uh, which is mentioned in the Vedic literatures. It is that which is the topmost activity which can fully um, satisfy the self. This is, uh, is, so whether one engages in religious or in spiritual activities, it's, it's both uh, acceptable. Uh, it's both accepted or in religious or in practical activities. As long as it's favorable for the Lord, both are acceptable. Mm. Yeah, so this is uh, it's nice um, because it makes it all, uh, what shall I say, it makes it all uh, very, very practical. Um, whatever is favorable in service of the Lord, that, that may be done. So uh, Rupa Goswami has here explained yukta vairagya, how to connect things to the Supreme Lord. We're living in a world which is now far away from uh, the Vedic tradition, and many aspects of the Vedic tradition are no longer uh, practical in a modern uh, context, nor are they necessarily practical in all the climates around uh, the world. Uh, we're living in... Uh, in yeah, in, in, in countries with uh, temperatures that don't exist in India. And if we look in the, uh, the Manasamhita, then it is mentioned that one should not live in a place where the uh, black deer or antelope is not roaming. Right? And one should live within eight kilometers from a body of water, things like that. Well, that may still be possible, but the black deer, that antelope, uh, we certainly have deer, but not the black one in colder countries and, uh, because the climate is not suitable for them. So then that would make, according to Manasamhita, these places inhabitable and, uh, or, and, and they are in some ways. I mean, we're living here. Uh, it is difficult to, uh, to live in these places. Of course, traditionally, um, the, the winters were, uh, were times when, uh, when farmers would, uh, um, yeah, would, would, they would have to prepare for the winter. Um, 
It was not a time to spend a lot of time outside. It was a time when uh, many things were done in the house. And, uh, um, but they built very nice wood heaters that could really warm the house very pleasantly. Um, I stayed in, uh, in uh, East Slovakia, just on the uh, border of uh, Ukraine. And they had this old large wood heater, which was very high and had tiles on the outside. And it, it, uh, it really was uh, heating up the room with a very pleasant, a very pleasant heat. Of course you have to, and it would, Stay hot also, it would contain that heat for quite a long time. Of course, uh, when we were there and the temperature was minus 35, uh, we made sure that that heater was always warm. <laughs> Even in the middle of the night, uh, we would add some more wood to the heat. It, uh, we as visitors, were using three times more, more wood than the locals, uh, what to do. Uh, we were just not accustomed to such temperatures. And uh, so we beg forgiveness for the high wood consumption, but uh, it was required. Yes, so somehow or other life was going on, but with, uh, yeah. But an exact or a Vedic standard of life may, may, uh, may be difficult. Um, so it's not required as long as it's favorable for the Lord. But spiritual principles remain, right? principles of purity. Hmm. Now, having said all this, I'm just uh, sort of today... Uh, received a letter from uh, a boy who, uh, who grew up in, uh, in, in, in Krishna consciousness. And uh, he's saying that uh, he must have been, uh, well, that he was involved with, uh, with ISKCON for around 10 years during his formative years from early childhood to late teens. I think I must have been around six years old when we joined. We might have gone to our first Jamastami when I was in my first grade, but my memory fails me. And 16 or 17 when I left the movement. Mm. I'll skip here and there, you know, because uh, you'll need to bear with me because the story in my mind begins far earlier than first grade. I spent my entire life trying to run from the past, but in the end, I can't help but feel I'm just a product of my environment and the experiences, memories and traumas of generations that came long before me. I fear I'm beginning to sound like Salman Rushdie, but for once, um, I'll write from the heart. 
uh, I come as many of your disciples do from a family of migrants. There have been two major migrations in my family history. The first was in 1947 when both my grandfathers during the bloody partition of British India uprooted their entire lives and narrowly escaped brutal religious violence to settle in Delhi. They fled across an artificial border created by a white man, protecting an imaginary sectarian identity created, radicalized and exploited by other white men and ended up dirt poor in a refugee settlement called Tilaknagar in the capital of a nation which had been more or less continuously robbed by white men for the 300 years leading up to this point. They and India, to be candid, have never really recovered from this ordeal. We still bitterly cling unto our sectarian selves, scapegoating millions of Muslims, Dalits, and women in the process, and despite years of progress since, hold an uncanny need to prove ourselves to the white man, as if his admiration or love might assuage the insecurity of generations of being considered second-class human beings. Nearly 75 years after 1947, we remain slaves to both our hatred and those who created it. Yeah, it is, it is uh, a letter where he describes how he is, uh, how his history has defined him and how he feels that uh, he has been deprived by this movement of, 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 uh, of real childhood and growing up natural. And that uh, his point is so much has been imposed upon him, imposed upon his grandparents, and also imposed, imposed by us uh, upon him, and not den- and denying him his natural way of life. Uh, his parents joined and his parents joined the Hare Krishna movement and his parents, they um, imposed principles upon him. No meat, fish, or eggs, no gambling, no intoxication, no illicit sex. And uh, at one point he writes how masturbation, which is a complete natural thing, uh, was greatly condemned and how he uh, um, how he was lectured by one of the senior members in in the movement. His parents brought him there, and um, how um, yeah he felt greatly suppressed, and how he's now trying to through. He, meanwhile, he studied in Oxford, and meanwhile, he became, uh, and he, uh, yeah, he feels his, uh, he feels like deep frustration. Mm -hmm. So what can we do? Um, Such things, 
may may be experienced. I think that I would uh, when I when I hear these kind of of things, my first response is is not to argue, uh, not to argue. When a person feels he has been robbed, his youth has been robbed by uh, by rigid by a code that imposed uh, val- oppressive values upon him and that has therefore blocked his natural growth. My first response to this is, is sadness, um, um, not anger or yeah, not confrontation, not argument. It is sadness. Sadness that he has uh, experienced it in, in such a way. Mm. Um, of course, I could, could share, I could share my own, uh, my own youth, mm. where I grew up like a, um, uh, in a, in a business family and uh, a nice sheltered life in a nice sheltered town, right? Um, and uh, everything was there, right? In terms of uh, what we needed. Um, but my father was not as rich as uh, as he wanted to be. Um, from, uh, from my side, I was quite okay with where we, uh, where we grew up. I liked it. We lived in, uh, on, an, uh, on a street that had a oval park in the middle uh, so that Oval Park it was not a big park, but a small, an, an oval park, which was our playground. So I was quite happy with, uh, with having that uh, oval park right there uh, on our doorstep where we played, uh, yeah, we, we played football. And one year we even, uh, convinced our parents. We convinced our parents to, uh, in the winter, to flood the entire park with water by making hose pipes from every house. And we turned the park into our own skating ring. And it was really like, I mean, that was the most far out thing. First of all, it was an idea of the kids. It was a pretty wild idea, but all the parents went along with it. That was the most amazing thing, you know. I mean, as a kid, you always have to go along with uh, whatever the parents want, and you're always told, no, this is not possible. No, that cannot be done because there are so many reasons and this and that. And this time, the parents just had no reasons 
and not just my parents or someone's parents, but everybody's parents, everyone's parents were okay with it. It was incredible. So we kids, we couldn't believe it. And the whole, and we flooded the whole, the whole park and turned it into an ice skating ring. Yes. And before school in the morning, I was already skating. And whenever I'd come back, I was skating on that ice cream, ice, ice rim, ice skating ring. So that was great fun. So I remember many nice things in my childhood. But I also remember that my father, driven by ambition, wanted to have more than he had. And that we went to a bigger house, but with, with, uh, with yeah, heavy loans and, and that it created so much pressure. And then uh, once all this was going on, then my father had uh, faced recession in his business. And that created so much stress, so much stress, uh, because he uh, tried to hold on to it. I didn't know. I thought everything everything was fine, and we just well we moved house. I like the old house better better actually, but anyway, we moved house, and uh, it was okay, and uh, and then uh, and then uh, my father had some. Uh, he became overworked. Yeah, okay, overworked. I mean, where that came from, I had no idea but he was suddenly overworked. Then a doctor became involved and looked at it and gave him uh, a new uh, treatment from America where they would give him, uh, he was supposed to get him some medication that would make him sleep for 17 days. And he tried to, through to certain pills, uh, put him out for 17 days. Um, so my father took the tablets and he was supposed to sleep for 17 days. But what happened? He slept for two hours. So then it came out that he had had a drug habit and that he had been working on pills for a long, long time. Amphetamines, tranquilizers, this, that. And that that had been the cause of his breakdown. Anyway, the doctor just uh, decided to increase the dose. But still, he wasn't sleeping. Still, he wasn't sleeping. Still, he was, uh, you know, he was going through, um, he was mostly sleeping, but everyone's still is waking up and then heavily intoxicated. And in this in one of his wake moments, heavily intoxicated, he tells me, while he speaks with a heavy intoxicated tongue and even saliva running from his mouth, he says, I am unfinished. I'm finished. You'll have to take care of the family. And as I looked at him, I thought, Yes, 
this is one of his clear moments. Actually, he's true. In a sense, he was. In a sense, he was, because he never returned to his uh, former uh, role in, in the business world. Yes. And for 10 years, we have faced a lot of... Uh, a lot of stress and a lot of difficulty until finally he died relatively young still. Anyhow, uh, that little part of my history in response to uh, someone who's expressing uh, that from 6 to 16, Iskon uh, robbed his, his youth because his parents became involved in Krishna consciousness. Then I look at, yeah, um, who robbed my youth, you know? And I say, like, well, the corporate world, uh, I, could, I could say the corporate world robbed my youth. My father, who was somehow or other working in an executive job in a company, uh, he, his life was robbed from him by the company, but he didn't see it. He was following the company. And then I could say the company uh, robbed me from my youth in, uh, from age 13 until early 20s. Um, yes, I could, could say that in response. Yes. Mm. I think someone else could say, um, um, I, I, I guess at the moment someone would say coronavirus robbed me of of my my youth. Yes. The question is, what were we robbed from? From from realizing the happy dream in this world. Is is it there? Um, everything would have been fine. Uh, in in his life, if his parents wouldn't have joined ISKCON, everything would have been fine in in my life if my father would not have been so ambitious and if he wouldn't have been driven in this executive role in a company. I don't know. Would it have been fine? Or is, is this world basically a place where... Uh, where happiness is limited. Um, this is what I began to see. Uh, wherever I went, wherever I looked, wherever I traveled, uh, I traveled all over the world. And wherever I traveled, I saw that uh, people were not actually, uh, were not actually, a great success. Wherever I traveled, I saw that people uh, were trying to be a success, but I didn't see happiness in this world. So that was not something that I got from, from the Hare Krishna movement. That was something that I rather uh, concluded uh, after 
extensively uh, traveling, studying the uh, uh, world around me. Mankind is, is, is trying to deal with life in an artificial way. We have, we have, uh, we have tried to conquer nature by technology. And here we are, big factories. Yes, as most in my generation did, uh, and as we are reading about Prabhupada's early disciples, I, uh, I tried out, I experimented, as young people do with life. And so, somehow or other, all around me, in the school, uh, the, the youth were trying out some, trying out drugs. So I tried a few. And one day, uh, one day, as I had taken some substance, I walked in the street. And, and a neighbor, a neighbor, he, he came in the car and said, come, you want to go for a ride? And while I was under the influence of, of that drug, he drove me all around. But he drove me through all kinds of areas, through nature, and then he drove me through the ports of Rotterdam, and I saw, I saw all these, uh, these horrible things. I saw huge, huge factories. I saw how uh, oil refineries, and we're driving through this, and uh, even, even normally, I would look at this like, what is this? But since I had taken that substance, I was now more sensitive to these impressions, and it even was more horrible. Yes, what can I say? Mm -hmm. What have we done to the earth? Placing, placing all these all these huge installations upon it of steel and, and smoke and, and fire and, and, and uh, to improve, to improve on the conditions of nature. Hmm. Okay. Um, of course, looking at it, uh, you wonder if that's an improvement. And looking now at the melting polar caps or at the increasing forest fires in, uh, in, in Australia or in many parts in the world, you kind of think, well, uh, has, the, uh, has it really brought an improvement, what man did, or did man upset the natural balance? Yeah, well, let's go back to nature. Mm, nature. Uh, certainly is also not uh, easy. Um, there was a reason why man tried to 
improve on nature. There was a reason. Yes. Man was experiencing that uh, nature was not just so, uh, so easy um, to deal with, that nature had a harsh face. Yes, nature, uh, climate, heat, cold, health, disease. Uh, uh, now, in this day and age, by the grace of modern uh, medical care and so on, child mortality has, uh, has, has decreased tremendously. But that previously, um, families would have many children, but uh, also um, so many would die. Uh, I have looked at, uh, at documentaries on this, uh, and, and yes, we, we see that, uh, yes, they had uh, uh, eight children, but, you know, uh, many of them would die. And uh, so, poof, uh, into the more natural world uh, was also in many ways harsh. And it is not... Uh, not surprising that people turned to technology. So the, tech, the, the shortfalls of the technological world are becoming more and more apparent to many that like, yeah, and uh, many are feeling, how can, can this go on? You know, how long can, can they keep on doing this? Well, some said all we need is a softer technology. Uh, maybe, okay, they're trying. I'm in, in Germany at the moment, and Germany is the country that took the initiative in, uh, in soft energy. Uh, in soft energy. So they... Uh, created a lot of these uh, these windmills everywhere as a big craze you see fields full of solar panels and so oh, they're growing solar panels here uh, instead of cabbages interesting yeah so uh, energy harvesting uh, is certainly uh, going on in this way mm. and of course yes uh, now, uh, some European nations, right, uh, including my country, are, uh, and others as well, are now speaking about when they have to meet their targets for clean energy, they want to, and that means for uh, minimizing the, uh, the uh, carbon emissions, carbon dioxide emissions, then they'll have to go to uh, nuclear energy. And they're talking about making 10 nuclear power plants. Poof. That's a lot. And that's uh, quite concerning, quite concerning in my mind. Uh, you know, yes, you will uh, in that way minimize the carbon, the carbon dioxide emissions, but 
you will increase you will increase the uh, um, you know the uh, the radioactive waste so it's like mm, you're moving you're shifting the problem that is all um, so we're looking at the world uh, is, is uh, having certain conditions and mankind has, has developed a lifestyle uh, in response to these conditions. And, uh, and we can ask many questions to, uh, to that lifestyle. That's exactly what the youth did in the 60s and 70s. And I can say that to a person feels that Iskon stole away his youth. Yes. Mm. And Iskon stole away his opportunity in his formative years for a natural development. All right. I can, uh, yes, fine. I will not... Uh, I will not argue with that, as I said. I'll just say the 60s and 70s were a time where the youth as a whole was seeing, and I'm talking now, a whole generation saw were going in the wrong direction. Um, we have to, to go into its, a direction of living in harmony, a direction of living of no longer living in a battle with the, uh, with the world around us. Mm. Philosophers like Nietzsche um, or, um, or Machiavelli, mm. they, uh, they presented us uh, a model where man is in uh, a battle in war with his environment. Uh, and uh, we're living in a hostile universe. And the answer to it is power. Right? And how can... So man responding to a hostile universe with power. Uh, in the... Uh, in the 60s, uh, the youth was no longer, uh, was not ready to buy this, this model. And we're speaking about sympathy and understanding. Uh, the musical hair uh, featured one song, which in uh, the lines of the song were sympathy and understanding Harmony and trust abound. Yes. So the whole idea was to live in harmony with our environment. And many people returned to the earth. And people were open to look at other traditions beyond, beyond what was going on locally. Uh, because locally meant full speed ahead with industrialization. Uh, 
full speed ahead. The, we have survived. The world war has destroyed, has destroyed the world. And the answer to it, to rebuild, to rebuild the economy and to rebuild our nations was industrialization. Uh, yes. Well, um, yes. We questioned it. The youth questioned it. In my, uh, in my uh, hometown, Amsterdam, there was a group of young people and they uh, made a political party uh, which operated on city level, right? And it got, uh, uh, it, and the, the party was called the Dwarfs. Um, because we remember uh, Cinderella and her uh, seven dwarves. And we remember that the dwarves, right, were basically preoccupied with gardening. So therefore, uh, the party said, the dwarves are better than the human beings because the dwarves are taking care of the earth instead of trying to overpower the earth. They work with the earth. So uh, the party became popular in Amsterdam and the leader, he got, uh, he got a, uh, he got a seat on the uh, city council. Mm. And they had all kinds of ideas like a free, free bicycles for anyone in the city, just all over the city one could take and drive around and then park it somewhere. And then someone else could just take it and drive around the city. So the city was maintaining a white bicycle plan. And anyone could take a white bicycle and drive around the city for free. And the idea was in this way to keep uh, to encourage riding on bicycles and in that way to uh, increase, well, diminish the, uh, the carbon emission. So you're talking 60s, 70s. Then also uh, that uh, plants are creating, uh, uh, creating uh, uh, oxygen. So they proposed roof gardens everywhere all over the city, roof gardens. And even they had, uh, they had little electric white cars, just little electric carts throughout the city. And they were even talking about making gardens on the roofs of those cars, right? So that uh, they'd also uh, contribute uh, to diminish the carbon emission. So, they had a plan, an idea. They, they had at least an ideology, right, at the time, and based on the principle of living in harmony with nature. So it was a youth in motion, um, a youth that started to question the uh, the values of the modern the modern world and modern society and the so-called normal lifestyle, uh, the youth said, this is not normal at all. Um, 
the world we are having today is not a normal world. The, the world um, which is uh, creating all kinds of artificial uh, pressures and stress, um, that world is not right. Born in, 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 in that environment, a younger generation was looking for solutions and started reading across the borders, started reading uh, books from other cultures. Some were reading books uh, from Chinese tradition, from South American traditions, and India, India with its Vedic culture, became, uh, yeah, became a major factor. And yes, uh, India, India's influence became very strong. People they saw, they saw the uh, that uh, the Vedic culture was providing a model uh, for society to live more in harmony in nature and not in a, in a battle with nature. Mm. Yes. Mm. For example, for example, it, it, uh, it described that there should be a agrarian-based society the Vedic culture has described the cow as sacred. And a, a sacred cow is, uh, I could never understand, you know. When I was young, I couldn't understand why India had, had, had declared the cow sacred. But then uh, it started to make sense. Uh, if one looks at it from an e ecological point of view, then protection of the cow is, is very perfect uh, because the bulls are used to plow the fields, the cows produce milk, which provides foodstuffs and so on, and in Vedic culture, um, butter and ghee and, uh, and, uh, and then the... Um, and then the cow dung is used as fertilizer for the land. So in this way, a society based on agriculture uh, by keeping bullocks and by keeping cows is, uh, and with land and cows is wealth, uh, a vegetarian society where the cow is not eaten, right, but protected for life and treated like one's mother, um, uh, a society uh, which was based on nonviolence. It appealed to, it appealed to a generation. Uh, in that generation, after, uh, in that post-war generation from 60s and 70s, the youth just turned to vegetarianism a mass, right? And yes, some, uh, many became macrobiotics and 
which was coming from Japan and ate, uh, you know, and 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 a balanced kind of diet, vegetarian diet, and the philosophy "you are what you eat" was coming forward, um, and uh, that it was important to eat. Uh, to sustain one's life on, in, in a non-violent way and that this would create noble humanity. So we saw these principles in, in the culture of ancient India. We saw these principles in, in, in the Buddhist culture of Japan, which also had its roots in India. Mm. So in this way, um, Yes, India became became the hub of an of an alternative way of life, and so many uh, looked into Vedic knowledge. When we looked at at Vedic knowledge, and uh, or at uh, at at history that came forth out of Vedic knowledge, a more harmonious lifestyle. Uh, not only for the planet, but also for the individual, uh, allowing a way of life of actually what Maslow named as self-actualization, uh, Maslow's pyramid of like basic needs to like emotional needs and to finally uh, fully realizing one's potential. All those, all those thoughts were prevalent in society. And all these things uh, brought us uh, to, the, to the Vedic literature. All these, and yes, uh, some followed this yoga, some followed yogi, some followed this teacher. Many teachers uh, became very influential in the Western world. And, uh, and the youth adopted. Um, uh, the hippies spoke about love and peace and flower power, right? In, in, you know, the power of love, yes. And, uh, but all that was rooted in, in, in a deep understanding. Uh, the, the, the famous musicians became like thinkers and prophets of the time and like the, like the Beatles saying, um, uh, imagine everybody uh, living in peace, yes, um, and and then singing. Finally, you may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Or other songs. All we are saying is give peace a chance. So, looking at inner peace, looking at outer peace, looking at harmony, looking at a society based on love and elevation. Yeah, then in order to, uh, to do so, then the East offered more depth in, in that approach to life. And yes, the, uh, um, the writer of the letter, who was from an Indian descent, uh, remind us, reminded us of European uh, colonialism and exploitation of, uh, of yeah, so many countries around the world, including India. 
and that uh, these countries are, have never uh, fully re recovered. He is not wrong. Uh, the colonial past has, uh, has completely formed the present day. And, 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 uh, and a lot of the wealth in the, uh, in the European world, which extended to America, is based on, uh, on stolen wealth. There's no doubt about that. And that is the history of the world. Uh, but that also raised questions. Why? Why? What, what is there? And Gandhi summed that up, uh, who said the world is big enough for every man's need, but not for every man's greed. So ultimately, it aimed at a need for individual reform. So not condemning, not condemning uh, ourselves, not a life of, life of self-denial, but looking at ourselves. The Bhagavad Gita provided us with a, a, mission, with a vision of ourselves. Um, and the Bhagavad Gita uh, provided us with a vision of, of a divided self. The Bhagavad Gita provided us with a vision of a lower self and a higher self. And that aspects in our nature were problematic. Trividam narakashvedam, three gates to hell, lust, anger, and greed. Hmm. Yeah, lust, not love. Sex, all right. A young man felt frustrated when he was checked in masturbation. Okay, I, I, uh, I understand. Hmm. When one is young, the sex urge is very, very strong. But on the other hand, uh, uncontrolled sex in one's youth also makes one addicted to uncontrolled sex. And uncontrolled sex means that, uh, that, one, that one's sexuality is, is taking over and that lust is coming to the foreground. And then we are beginning to see others as lust objects then we don't care anymore, then we care more about the bodies of people than about the person inside. So what about that? Uh, the person inside is to us more, the soul is more important. So to protect the soul means that lust must be diminished and that somehow or other lust must be uh, must be controlled. Otherwise, uh, lust is cruel. Lust reduces a person to just being an object and the body of a person being just an object and, and just being exploited without caring for the person within the body. Mm. Look at 
India today and look at the problem that is there with rape. Um, yes, so lust is, a, is indeed one of the gates to hell. So from Bhagavad Gita, we understood that there is a higher nature and a lower nature and uh, within us. And we began to see the benefit of conquering the lower nature, um, not suppressing, not suppressing, but seeing where it would lead. Yeah. Sex is natural. Yeah, okay. Uh, to what extent? Uncontrolled sex is natural. Uh, sex has a place in life. But when sex comes too much to the foreground, then lust will predominate us and will become self-centered. And we will uh, become so much afflicted by that lust that we do not care any longer about others and just want to enjoy and exploit their bodies. So this, uh, and then women become lust objects. We use them in advertising and we create then a model in society where women are encouraged to wear clothes which expose their bodies. And, uh, and so, and it's not so easy. It's not so easy uh, to control these things. So the ancient culture, the ancient Vedic culture of India, um, where sex had a place, but was more uh, directed towards marriage. And sex outside of marriage did exist, but it was considered prostitution and considered of a, of a lower nature that would not help anyone to grow. Um, that kind of, of sex is, uh, is more acceptable. So, yeah, in this way, we began to, uh, to understand this when we, uh, in our search for, uh, for harmony, for harmony with our environment, for harmony within, and in our search, we could see we have to overcome our inner vice. We realize that vice is inherent there in every man. And therefore, when, uh, when a boy, who is now 23, has, uh, has written in a letter that when he was six, that his parents became devotees, and that when he was, and that for 10 years he felt uh, suppressed and that his natural development had been stolen and that he's now in therapy to try and rise above. Yes, but then I will still present that 23-year-old young man who is now highly educated and intelligent with the, uh, uh, with, the, with the questions and the search 
of, uh, of, a, of a generation of the 60s and the 70s and why, why that search was there and why these questions were asked. And therefore, I would say um, to that young man, uh, without with appreciating, appreciating how he feels right, and respecting that. I think at the same time, though, I think that uh, you will find that this world is, but that it's not so easy to just uh, enjoy a so-called normal life in this world. Um, we'll see. The, and that the bhakti scriptures are actually offering uh, a deep, uh, deep solution for inherent problems. So that's not here some cold that imposes all these things, but it deals, it deals with inherent problems in, of life. Uh, that's all I can say. Uh, and so, yes, um, we are finding a better way, a better way of life in the Vedic tradition of India, and particularly in the bhakti tradition of India. Then how we practice that, we don't have to just become traditional uh, Vedic uh, people. We can use both the Vedic principles and the modern uh, practical things of, of the culture of today, as long as it's Hari Seva, Anakul. Uh -huh. So um, that's why I chose this verse today from the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, um, because after uh, reading that letter, I, I, felt, I felt touched by it, touched by the, the deep feeling and uh, that that the writer expressed, and I felt that was sad. And uh, I wish I could just offer my friendship uh, to that to the writer and say, "Yes, please choose your life." But um, yeah, this morning. Um, I, I somehow or other said something on the team and that like when I was a teenager, I got, got this uh, song. I, I bought this music from a band called The Animals and there was a song which was, it's my life and I do what I want. But uh, as time went on, I realized that it's not that I do what I want with my life, but that life is doing what it wants with me. And that is the predicament. And therefore, I'm looking for solutions. And I think that there are deep solutions in the, in the Vedic literatures 
that can help us. In the spirit of friendship. I've tried to explain the other side of the coin. Thank you very much. Shri Prabhupada Kijai.